I uh, am winding down the semester here for school and I, I just took on an insanely heavy load this semester just to see if I could do it. And so, uh, big mistake. Uh, but it's good. God is faithful. I'm learning a lot. I praise Him for that. I have also learned what not to do. And so, um, would you be praying for me? I have a week or two left and uh, just uh, a massive amount of writing and, and reading and stuff. Uh, final, final exams. I have three final exams this week. Uh, and so, please be praying for your pastor. I certainly would appreciate that. I certainly need it. And uh, hopefully it will be good for you guys in the long run. Because ultimately I'm doing it for you. Because I, you know, school, man. You know, who, who wants to do that? But I'm doing it for you because I love you and I want to be able to serve you as best I can. Now having said that, uh, we have a guest, a guest pastor today, Pastor Phil Foley. He is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Vallejo. And we often ask those brothers to come and preach. It's just a very God-blessed church. they got several men that are very gifted preachers and teachers connected to the seminary there. Uh, pastor Phil, as I said, is the senior pastor there, but he's also one of my professors. And uh, he has taken a month or two off uh, from his preaching duties to finish up his dissertation for his doctorate. And so uh, uh, he has agreed to come this morning and to share God's word with us. I'm so excited to have him, and this also will free me up to be able to spend a little more time just getting all my schoolwork done. And so God is very good. He provides for his church so very faithfully. And so, Pastor Phil, would you come on up? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for, for Pastor Phil and our time. Thank you, brother. Father God, we love you, and uh, we bless your holy name. And I thank you that you give gifted men to your church to exalt you and to uh, bless your people. And I thank you for Pastor Phil and just uh, what a blessing and encouragement he has been to me over the years. And I thank you for the word that he's going to bring today. I'm very excited to, to hear this. I'm excited for our people to hear it. And so I pray that you would receive honor, Father, that you would be greatly pleased that uh, what's happening in this room today would be like a sweet-smelling aroma that rises to the heavens that is truly pleasing in your sight. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would open our eyes and our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us and teach us from your word. And we, we come in faith believing that you're going to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think because you love us, Lord, because you're faithful, because you're so very kind and gracious. And we know that firsthand we have received grace upon grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Brother Phil. Well, good morning. Such a joy to be here together with you. Um, Rob has become a dear friend, and we've had opportunities to get together for lunch a number of times. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for you, brother, and, and just a joy to, to be here behind this pulpit. I'm here with my lovely wife, Becky. She's here somewhere. Um, and I think she's, I don't see her, but maybe she's sitting in the back. But uh, oh, there she is over there. Okay. Uh, she's my, uh, my support and my encouragement and my greatest critic for sure. So thankful for her. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You know, the Bible reminds us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it, you could look at this realm and it you could see that it has the attributes of its ruler, 
darkness, wickedness, hatred, selfishness, sin, and death. It's a realm that focuses on the temporary, not the eternal, on lies, not truth. And that's the realm in which we live. But at salvation, God graciously rescues you from the domain of darkness and transfers you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And when God does that, He gives you new eyes, new insight, new longings, new loves, new delights that you never had before. Praise God for that. And so though we are living in the realm of darkness, we're not of the realm of darkness. But let's just be honest. Don't you sometimes forget that you're living in a realm of darkness? I know I do. We're supposed to be light, but I think we're more often than not like a dimmer switch. The light slowly gets turned down and darkness doesn't seem so dark and people don't seem so lost. And we become comfortable Christians, just content to be with one another while the world's perishing. And when we live that way, it really saps the urgency of the gospel. We, we forget our calling and our purpose and our mission. And so we need to be reminded that this world is not neutral territory. This, this is not a bright, sunny place filled with nice people who are living joy-filled lives. Now, it can seem that way in our prosperity. But then what God does is He sends viruses and fires and social unrest, and He reminds us of something, doesn't He? This world's temporary. It's a temporary place. The, these calamities that we've seen over the past year or so or years, th these are not abnormal glitches that will soon be over so that we can get back to our normal, comfortable lives. No, this is a realm of darkness. This world that we live in is under a curse until Jesus comes. We should expect plagues and social unrest and natural disasters because we're living in darkness. And God uses these things often to remind us that we shouldn't be living comfortably here because it's not our home. Beloved, you're not of darkness. You are a people who've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. That's who you are. You're a people who have been given a mission. And we, we need to remind ourselves that this world is on a collision course with judgment, and a person's only hope is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the answer. We are, the, we are to be the light of Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is just remind you about the urgency of your calling and exhort you to be about the work that Christ has called you to do. I mean, if there was ever a time for the church to be the church, it's today. We are called to be the church. And in being reminded of our example, we want to look at the example of Jesus. We want to see Christ Himself. And so notice what the author of Hebrews writes here, and we're just going to look at the first few verses. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, in troubling times like today, it it is easy to grow weary. It's easy to lose heart. And so, the author exhorts us here and challenges here to help us overcome that, to not grow weary, to not lose heart, is run the race. Run the race. I've titled this, Fixing Your Eyes on Jesus. Fixing Your Eyes on Jesus. And the subtitle is, Looking to His Example as You Run the Race. Looking to His Example as You Run the Race. Now, as we begin, I just want to make a few observations The Christian life, we see, first of all, is likened to a race. We're like we're in a race. And and to be clear, this is not a race to earn heaven. You're not running to earn heaven. You're not trying to run to earn a right standing with God. No, you're in the race because you have a right standing with God. You're already right with Him. You enter the race when you believe in Jesus. And it's a race you're to be running In verse 1, when he says run, it's in the present tense. Run the race. In other words, this is not the time to sit still. This is not the the time to be standing in place or jogging in place. No, run. Run. Too many Christians, I think, are on the sidelines. They're they're distracted by the world. They're, They're wearied by troubles. Or maybe they've even made an idol out of health, and they've drifted away from Christ. The author would exhort you, God would exhort you, get back in the race. Run. That's what you've been called to do. Run. Now, secondly, another observation we notice here. To run the race well, you have to know what the race is. What are we running? What are we doing? Well, in the context, the author describes the race as advancing the kingdom of God in the realm of darkness. That's really the context. The race, in other words, is living by faith for the glory of God. Living by faith. That's chapter 11, right? You know chapter 11, the hall of faith? It's believing God and responding accordingly. But then you get into chapter 12 here, and he describes the race as helping other Christians grow. Look at verse 12, for example. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So notice he's using that imagery again of path. You're on this path. You're running this race. And as you're running the race, help people, help other Christians alongside you to to run the race. That's called discipleship, right? That's That's all the one another's, right? Where you're caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens and praying for one another and uh, admonishing one another. Right? That, I'm, that's why I'm so glad you mentioned about having home uh, meeting in homes again because that's where the one another's really are lived out. That's what he's talking about here. That's the race. In verse 14, he describes the race as pursuing peace with all people. Pursuing peace. You know, that can only happen through the gospel of peace and the prince of peace. We, we have a ministry of reconciliation. We're to be talking to others about the gospel. And then he says, he mentions um, that pursuing the race is pursuing sanctification, verse 14, Christ-likeness. And then at the end of the chapter, he 
says the race is offering to God an acceptable service, verse 28. So if you take all of these things together, you could see that we could summarize the race as carrying out the commands of God for the glory of God. That's the, that's the race, carrying out the commands of God for the glory of God. And so you see here the Christian life is not passive. The, the Christian life is active. It's running a race. And then another observation about this race, we could say this, it encompasses the rest of your life the rest of your life. Now, to run a race that long requires endurance. I, I was never a runner. I didn't like running. I played football in high school, and the, the thing I hated most about football was running. <laughs> and so I, when he says run with endurance, I, I get that. You need endurance to run a race. And think about the race that we are running. It's filled with hardship, trials, battles against sin, and the devil and the world, endurance is sustained by faith. That's how endurance is sustained. It's sustained by faith, by fixing your eyes on Jesus, by having your eyes on the finish line, on the goal, where you're going. And the finish line is Christ. Your destination is heaven, where Christ is. And listen, Jesus is everything. He's everything. Secondly, endurance is strengthened by the godly example of others. Oh, we need that. It's strengthened by the godly example of others. That's, that's why he begins this chapter 12 with therefore. Therefore, right? He's just given all these examples in chapter 11. Therefore. And so we need to be strengthened by godly examples. You know who the perfect example is? Jesus. Look to Christ. He's the perfect example. And then endurance is stimulated by the reward that you receive when you finish the race. And your great reward is Christ himself. So let's take a few minutes and, and look at fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we wanna look at his example. First, running the race is sustained by faith in Christ. Running the race is sustained by faith in Christ. When the author says here in verse two, fix your eyes on Jesus, he's talking about eyes of faith. Eyes of faith. When you, when you believe in Jesus, God gives you new eyes to behold Christ. Your, your, your mind is no longer blinded to the glories of Christ. God has shown light in your heart so that you see the glory of God. And where do you see that? In the face of Christ. That's where you see his glory. And so for the first time, you see Jesus in all his beauty. You see him as the pearl of great price. He, he's the greatest treasure, the most wonderful friend. He's your Lord and master, the lover of your soul, your protector, your defender. Jesus is everything. He's your first love. And Peter says it like this. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You, you love him. Even though you've never seen him, you love him. Why? Because you have eyes of faith. You've seen him by faith. Oh, and he's glorious and he's beautiful. And so it's essential that as you run the race that you rivet your eyes on Jesus because beholding him is what enables you to endure the race. It's beholding him. That's what enables you to endure through all this. You have to fix your eyes on the goal for which you're running. And so I ask you, what are you running for? What are you running for? What are you pursuing? If you were to look at your life, what do you pursue after? 
Do you ha- are you pursuing after Christ? Are you running for the finish line? Concentrated attention on Christ is going to keep you from distractions. And so negatively, your race will be hindered by obstacles that get your eyes off Jesus. <laughs> and if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that's true, right? There are obstacles that will hinder you from running the race because it, those obstacles get your eyes off Christ. In, in this race, there's impediments, there's distractions, there's allurements that will tempt you to veer off course or even quit the race. Some, some people get alert off course by sin. You've given in to temptation, you've, you've tasted the passing pleasure of sin, and you've found out it doesn't satisfy And yet sin so easily entangles us and it trips us up and we fall flat on our face. Can you relate to that? Ever done that? Have you ever experienced the battle of sin and lost? So discouraging, huh? Especially if it's the same sin you keep battling. So how do you overcome sin? Well, you've got to find something that's more pleasurable. Find something that's more satisfying. Be like Moses who considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Christ was better than the passing pleasures of sin. So you have to fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race. And one reason we get our eyes off Christ one reason we get our eyes off Christ is because we have our eyes on sin. We've got to get our eyes back on the lovingness of Christ. Some, some get alert, of course, by worldliness. Demas, Paul wrote, having loved this present world has deserted me. Think about that. Demas, one of Paul's closest companions, one of his disciples, whom Paul had poured his life into, that the, Demas had heard Paul preach Christ, he saw him live, live Christ, and yet Demas forsook Christ. He thought the world was better than Jesus, that pursuing some temporary pleasure would satisfy him. He was wrong. Don't don't give in to the allurements of the world. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Others have been alert, of course, by false teaching. It's been amazing this, this past year to see the flood of false teaching just pour into the church. And while the church was on lockdown, things like social justice and critical race and intersectionality and feminism and transgenderism have all made inroads into the church. You know what the danger of false teaching is? It denies the master. It denies the master. It it diverts from the gospel. And so if you listen to these people who are in the church, you'll notice no mention of Christ. There's no mention of Christ. The gospel gets twisted. Nothing's more fatal. Keep on course. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When when the author here talks about, in verse 1, encumbrances, it literally means a weight. And so he's talking about encumbrances and sins. Well, encumbrances are things that are not necessarily sinful. In fact, they could be something good, but they're things that are hindering your race because they're weighing you down, and you're, you're not able to run effectively. It's things that really sap your energy and divert your attention from the things of God. Listen, you can't win a race when you're carrying around extra weight. Now, some people may ask, well, what's wrong with doing this? You know what the answer may be? 
nothing in itself. It's not what the weight is, it's what the weight does. If it keeps you from wanting well, then you need to discard it. A few years ago, there was a world-class runner. He was favored to uh, win a particular race, but when he went to the race, he actually failed to even qualify, which actually shocked many because he was the favorite. And so when he was interviewed afterwards, he admitted that he had put on a few pounds because he hadn't trained well. Think about that. Just a couple of pounds cost him the race. A couple pounds. We think that's nothing. What little things in your life are slowing you down that are preventing you from running well? We, we need to stop and examine ourselves. That might be a good thing to do today. Just stop and examine yourself. What, what are some of the little things that are preventing me from running well? They may not even be sinful things. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I had to do this. There, there were things in my life that were lawful, that were okay things. They weren't the best things. They weren't the best things. They were distracting me. And, and it's those little encumbrances, a few extra pounds that slow you down. And so what are, what are those distractions? that are slowing you down, that are keeping you from serving, that are keeping you from discipleship, that are keeping you from getting out the gospel and carrying out your mission. So get your eyes focused back on Christ and run the race. This word fixing that he uses here in verse 2 is present tense. And so the idea is you must continually fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because, listen, there's constant allurements. There's constant distractions, constant temptations, constant encumbrances and sins that will get you off course. Those are things that will hinder the race. And so those are some of the obstacles that you've got to avoid to get your eyes back on Christ. And so those are some negative things. Positively, your race is helped by keeping your eyes on Jesus. Right? Verse 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So the question I think it, we could ask ourselves is this, why, why does the author exhort us to keep our eyes on Jesus? What is so special about Christ? Well, if you think about the book of Hebrews, what the author does right from the very first verses, he begins to show the uniqueness of Christ and how he's better. In fact, if you have Jesus, you have all. If you miss Jesus, you have missed all. In Christ are the treasures of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Through Christ, we have the, the precious promises and astounding gifts. But listen, though the gifts of Christ are precious, Jesus himself is most precious. He's the richest and rarest of all gifts. I mean, think how few have him. Christ alone should be highly prized and delighted in, for Jesus has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He alone is most useful and suitable to enliven, to enlighten, to defend, to nourish, to cheer. These wonderful realities of Christ are, are not simply meant, though, for you to wonder at Him. You should. But they should also move you to action. They should move you to action. God gives these glorious truths about Jesus to change us. I mean, if Jesus really is who the Bible says He is, 
that when you fix your eyes on Him, you will keep running with endurance through all the obstacles, through all the troubles, doing what God requires because Jesus is worthy. And so what makes Jesus so stunning? Let's just ponder that for a few minutes and just bask in Christ for a moment. What makes Him so stunning? He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. He radiates the fullness of God because He is God. Jesus is the one upholding all of creation by the word of His power. Think about that. Omnipotent power. He holds it all together. Jesus is the Son of God whom the Father appointed heir of all things through whom He also made the world. So Jesus was the agent through whom the Father spoke all things into existence. In the beginning, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of His hands. That's your Savior. Think He can help you? It's glorious. Jesus is eternal. He never changes. His years won't come to an end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know what that means? He always has the same power, the same love, and the same compassion. He never changes. Since Jesus is God, the Father commands all the angels to worship Him, and someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Jesus is stunning because He's our God. But what makes Jesus even more amazing is that he humbled himself to take on humanity. You know, sometimes I don't think we grasp the significance of that because we think too highly of ourselves. But God took on humanity, took on flesh, and he took on flesh so he could die. He was made a little, for a little while lower than the angels so he could suffer and die and it, so that he might taste death for everyone. And in dying, he made purification for sins and sat down for his work was finished. And Jesus did all of that to save wicked sinners like you and I. What a glorious Savior. Oh, do you know this Savior? Do you know this one that I'm talking about this morning? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? You have him, you have all. You miss him, you miss all. But Jesus is even more incredible. He's even more incredible. Because he partook of flesh and blood, listen, he can relate to you. Isn't that glorious? He can relate to you. God, God is not some God way out there. Oh, no, he took on humanity. He took on flesh. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He knows what it it's, feels like to be tempted in all things. Because he was tempted in all things like we are, and yet without sin. Think about the tenderness and the graciousness of Christ who preserves and strengthens those weak graces in you until they mature. Don't you love that about Jesus? Sometimes we get so impatient with people, oh, not Jesus. He's just going to keep working in you until you mature because he's gracious and tender. How sweet Jesus acts toward the weak. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. You ever seen a, smol a candle smoldering? and just putting on all that smoke. It's, it smells. So you put it out. Not Christ. Not Christ. No, he flames that. 
that'll and gets it going again. Right? He won't break you off. He fans that flame. Why? Because his honor and his faithfulness and his goodness are engaged toward you. That's why. Jesus will keep alive that heavenly fire which he has kindled in any of your souls. There's no one like this Jesus, is there? And the scriptures present him this way so that poor sinners will fall in love with him. And so that the saints will know we have a complete redeemer. We have one who's rich in grace to pardon and power to support. None but Jesus can do this for his people. Oh, so fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on him. Think about the great care of Jesus for his people. The great care of Jesus for his people. And how he gives the best gifts to his best loved ones. Yeah, that's what Jesus does. He gives his best gifts to his best loved ones. This very day, the Lord Jesus is sustaining every single person on this planet. He's providing for all of their needs, and most of those people don't know him and never give him thanks. And Jesus does this every day for billions of people, and his resources are never depleted. Oh, think of the the greatness and the kindness of Christ. That's what he does for everybody. Oh, but his best gifts are for his best loved ones, not for the world. Christ's gifts are excellent because they're soul-satisfying gifts, and they're suitable for your need. I mean, think about this. Some gifts are good. Others are fittingly good. I mean, a condemned man can receive many different kinds of gifts, can he? You know what the one gift he needs more than any other? A pardon. That's the most suitable gift. And so as a sick woman needs health or a hungry person needs bread, so the precious gifts Christ bestows upon the soul satisfy the soul. That's why Jesus is most precious. His gifts are distinguished from the world's gifts because the world's gifts can appease your soul. For example, the world will tempt you with money, but the Bible tells us he who loves money won't be satisfied with money. If you pursue the world, you're going to find emptiness. But the precious gifts of Christ are the most useful, for they strengthen against temptation. They give support when under affliction. Haven't you found that to be true about Christ? Doesn't he sustain you and carry you through your affliction? in your troubles, and your trials. What a Savior. No one like Him. Worldly gifts, they cannot bear up the spirits of men from fainting and sinking when trials come. But in contrast, through all of life's challenges, through health, sickness, viruses, plenty, poverty, fire, smoke, honor, disgrace, life or death, Christ's gifts enable the believer to stand. He enables you to stand. He carries you through. And listen, beloved, these gifts that Jesus gives you are meant to endear your heart to Him. Not to the gifts. They're meant to endear you to Him. That He is precious. That He is glorious. So yes, we're thankful for the gifts. They're wonderful. Jesus is more wonderful. He's the richest gift. In Him are unsearchable riches. 
He who has Christ has all. If you miss him, you miss all. So do you have Christ? That's the most important question, isn't it? Do you have this Christ? He's everything. And so for those of you who have Christ, fix your eyes on him. That's going to enable you to run, to endure, to keep doing what Christ has called you to do. So endurance, it's it's sustained by faith in Christ, by fixing your eyes on Jesus. And there's nothing more important than this, because that's how you're going to finish the race. So let, let me ask this maybe simple question. How do you do this? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, you, you know the answer. The answer is simple. Don't neglect your Bible. You can't neglect this. It's called the Word of Christ in Colossians because it's about Christ. And so if you want to see Christ's loveliness and you want to see Christ's compassion and you want to see His power and the radiance of His glory, then study your Bible. Study your Bible. Peter exhorts us, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Well, if you've tasted of Christ, then you want to have more. You want more. And so you'll long for the pure milk of the Word because the Word reveals Christ. And so read your Bible. Study your Bible. Memorize the Word of God. Meditate on it so you see Christ and enjoy Him. And enjoy Him. Now, the goal of fixing your eyes on Jesus is to respond in worship and obedience. It's to run. It's to run, doing what God has called you to do. So that's the first point. Running the race is sustained by faith in Christ. Now, second, running the race is strengthened by the example of Christ. When we run the race, it's strengthened by the example of Christ. We are to look to the Lord Jesus as our example of how to live by faith. Look to Jesus. He says, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And by using the name Jesus here, the author is focusing on his humanity, how he lived as a man. And what we find about Jesus, he sets the supreme example of what it means to live by faith, what it means to trust God in all of life and actually endure all the way to the end. He's the author and perfecter of faith. Of faith. Now that word author, it's a, it's a word that has really two meanings. One idea is, means originator, the other means leader. And I think the emphasis in this context is one who leads. And the idea is he's leading by example. Jesus has given the perfect example of what it means to live by faith. Now in light of the previous chapter, chapter 11, faith is the believing response to God. That's what faith is. You believe something, you respond. You believe something, you do something. And he gives examples of those who believe God and then who did something. For example, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out. He believed God, he obeyed. He, he did something. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who's unseen. By faith, he did something. He left Egypt. So faith, what true faith is, is it's belief that results in a response. They believe God, that God is, and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. And so they respond with acts of faith. And you could read chapter 11, and we have some wonderful examples, but you know what? They're not perfect examples, are they? 
right? They faltered in their faith. Jesus, in contrast, is the author. He's the leader. He's the preeminent example of faith. In his earthly life, Jesus was the crowning example of trusting God. So if you were to read the Gospels, you would see a man who lived his life trusting God. Even though he's equal to the Father, he lived his life in submission to the Father. And in doing that, he brought to fruition what it says in chapter 2. I will put my trust in him. That's how he lived his life. I will put my trust in him. And Jesus did that flawlessly. So we can look at his example and be encouraged of what we're to do. In chapter 3, the author calls us to consider Jesus, for he was faithful to him who appointed him. Christ was faithful as a son over his house. So the father appointed the son a work to do, the work of redemption. The author says he was faithful to accomplish that work without ever disobeying God. That's why he's glorious. He lived by faith. He was faithful to accomplish the work he was sent to do. He's the perfecter of faith. He brought faith to its perfect end, to its completion. He continued, in other words, to trust the Father until he could say this, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he obeyed all the way by faith to the end, even trusting that through his death, the Father would vindicate him and raise him from the dead. So he was totally committed to the Father. There has never been a walk of faith like this. And, and what's amazing about Christ's walk of faith, it was through suffering. That's what's amazing. It was through suffering. Because that's what he brings out here. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was through suffering. And so we are exhorted to look to Jesus on how to endure by faith. So how did Jesus endure? And what can we learn from him? Well, let's consider three things briefly. Three things that might help us endure. First, by faith, Jesus looked ahead. He looked to the goal. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's looking to the end. He has his sight set on the joy set before him. And that joy, according to verse 2, was his exaltation, where he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. So he's willing to endure the cross so that he could sit down at the throne of God, having accomplished what the Father sent him to do. The joy of his exaltation, though, listen, could only be accomplished if he finished the race. It's the only way it could be accomplished. So as he's got his eyes on the finish line of the joy set before him of seeing, sitting, sitting at the right hand of the Father, having finished what the Father sent him to do, he had to go through suffering to get there. He had to make purification of sins before he could sit down at the right hand of the majesty of high, on high. Chapter 1, verse 3. Once he did that, the Father would raise him from the dead, exalted him to the highest place, his right hand where he sits until the Father makes all of his enemies his, a footstool for his feet. Chapter 1, verse 13. We have a high priest in chapter 8 who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens. 
In chapter 10, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So notice five times in this letter, five times, we, we were told about Christ's exaltation, him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 1 twice, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12. This is a main theme. Throughout the book, the author emphasizes his finished work, his exaltation. But listen, it's through the path of suffering. It's through the path of suffering. That's how he got there. But he kept his eyes on the finish line, on the joy set before him. Christ, in other words, had eyes of faith. His assur- he had assurance of things hoped for. His faith and his trust in the Father was unwavering. And so application for us, do you have your eyes on the finish line? Is that where your hope is? Is that where you're looking? I mean, we are living in a cursed realm of darkness where there's fires and diseases and unrest. Have you gotten your eyes beyond the temporary to the eternal? When your eyes are on the joy set before you, the joy of seeing the King in His glory, the joy of seeing your champion and redeemer face to face. The joy of being in a place where there's no darkness, no death, no diseases, no unrest, no smoke, no tears, no curse. The joy of a world of perfect love. When you have your eyes on that, that's what's going to sustain you to run the race. Do you have your eyes there? Is that what you're looking forward to? Do you believe Jesus is coming to take you to a place that he's prepared for you? Then run with endurance. See, run the race. Run the race. Look ahead to the goal. Follow Jesus' example. The second thing we learn from Jesus, by faith he endured suffering. He endured the cross, and that describes, of course, his suffering the, the physical suffering he went through was, is almost beyond description. We had a brother come from Vacaville at our church on Good Friday, and he, he just enumerated. I'll just list a few things he said, but it, it was incredible to hear the detail that he went into. Christ was given blows and slaps to the face, crowned with thorns that were then beaten into his head. He was scourged, which ripped open his flesh, His hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. Isaiah reminds us that his appearance was marred more than any man. While hanging on the cross just to breathe, he would have to pull himself up, pushing up from the nail that are in his feet and pulling by the nails in his hands and scraping his lacerated back on the cross just to take a breath, which he did for six hours. And then, of course, besides the physical suffering, there was the mental suffering. He was falsely accused of doing evil when he had always only had done good. He was abandoned by his closest friends. Think about that. Not one of them stood with him. They all deserted him, even some denying they knew him. His enemies hurled abuse at him, saying things like this, "'Commit yourself to the Lord.'" Let him deliver you since he delights in you. They mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. They taunted him. If you're really the son of God, as you claim, save yourself and come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in you. 
But of course, the most excruciating suffering was enduring the wrath of God for the sins of the world. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was able to endure all of this, the cross, for the joy set before him. He's looking past the temporary, past the suffering, to the joy. He was looking to what his suffering would accomplish, bringing many sons to glory. And he did this by faith. He trusted the Father would do what he said. So he endured the cross. Peter says he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He knew the Father's character. He knew the Father would vindicate him. So by faith he endured. And so again, I ask you, are you looking ahead? Are, are you looking past the suffering, past the persecution, past the troubles to the joy set before you? Do you believe God? Do you believe He judges righteously? Do you believe He will vindicate you? Do you have a living hope that one day you will be with Jesus, reigning with Christ? Do you believe that God is going to use your present suffering to accomplish His good purposes? I mean, if Jesus could trust the Father through all His suffering and His death, can't we trust the Father? I mean, we haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, have we? Jesus, we're told, despised the shame. He was treated shamefully. He was pronounced innocent three times by the man who eventually condemned him to death. Talk about government injustice, right? He was hung naked on a cross and died a criminal's death. Yet, Jesus despised the shame. He thought little or nothing of being disgraced and dishonored by men. His concern was not what men thought of him, but what God thought of him. Now think of the contrast of that to most people. Isn't one of our constant struggles to love the approval of others? We want to be thought well of, and that often motivates what we do. And yet Christ didn't do that. Listen, as a Christian, you're going to suffer for Christ. You're going to suffer for him. You have to decide, do you love the approval of men more than the glory of God? To overcome this temptation, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's worth living for. He's worth suffering for. I, I think of the apostles. When they were flogged for pre preaching Jesus, it says in Acts 5, they rejoice that they had been considered worthy for suffering shame for his name. Listen, Jesus suffered shame for you. Can you suffer shame for him? Again, the way to handle suffering, fix your eyes on Christ. Third thing we can learn from Jesus on how he endured. By faith, Jesus obeyed the Father by accomplishing his work. He obeyed the Father by accomplishing his work. The cross, in verse 2, when he talks about the cross here, it not only describes his suffering, it actually also defines the work he came to do. That's what he came to do, go to a cross. In chapter 10, we're told that the Father prepared a body for Jesus. So the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a man while still being holy God. A body was prepared for him. Why? So that Jesus could suffer in that body. So he can give his life up in that body. He took on flesh to die. 
And Jesus did this because that was the Father's will. It says in verse 10 and chapter 10, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. By this will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The will of God was for the Son of God to take on a body to die. That's the will of God. And amazingly, Jesus did it with delight. That's what's amazing. He did it with delight. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. He tells us in John. He said in John 4, his food was to, to, his food was to do the will of the Father and accomplish his work. <laughs> That's his food. That's what made him nourished. That's what sustained him. That's what moved him. And Jesus displayed perfect obedience through what he endured. He trusted fully in God through all of his intense suffering. And he alone is qualified to be our Savior. And so since he was perfect by his one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So what can we learn from Jesus' example of obeying the Father and accomplishing his work? Well, listen, Jesus' faithful obedience was rooted in his relationship with his Father. That's where it was rooted. He loved the Father. He enjoyed the Father. He communed with the Father and so knew his character. And so he knew something about his Father. He can be trusted. He knew that God, when God said something, he would do it. So he gladly, willingly came to carry out the Father's will for the glory of God. And so you, how about you and I? We can accomplish the work that God has sent us to do by faith, by trusting God. And trusting God is rooted in your relationship with God. That's where it's rooted, in communing with Him, in delighting in Him, in knowing Him. And as you live the Christian life, you, you learn something. God is always faithful. God will never let you down, ever. And so you have a race to run. You have good works to accomplish that God has prepared before Him for you to do. And though there may be some surprises along the way, by faith, you need to trust God and keep running, doing the things He wants you to do. Let, let me just share something personal. Eight years ago, um, my pastor was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and he eventually died. Now, Steve was the founding pastor of our church. He planted that church. He was uh, a dynamo. He was a very charismatic guy. He, um, a man larger than life. How do you replace a guy like that? And then when he died, we were in the middle of a multi-million dollar building project that was half built and no money in the bank. And that's what one of the surprises God threw me into. Got to love that, right? And, and, I, and I believe something about God. I believe God is sovereign over everything. But I must confess, there was a few times where I got in my closet and I had to ask God, God, you, are you sure you got the right guy? I'm not sure I'm the right guy. And I really wrestled with that at times. So what did I have to do? I had to trust God. I had to believe God. I had to run the race. Right? I had to keep going, doing the things He wanted me to do. Do you believe God? Do you believe it? Then obey him. Run the race. Let, let me finish with one last thing. Running the race with endurance 
is stimulated by the reward. Oh yes, running the race with endurance is stimulated by the reward, and the reward is Christ Himself. Look at verse 3. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author commands you to consider Jesus. Ponder on Christ. Meditate on what Jesus did for you. He endured hostility by sinners against Himself. Listen, He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to endure hostility. He could have destroyed His enemies. Jesus has all power. So He didn't have to go through that. But Jesus didn't destroy them because He came to save sinners like them and us. Praise the Lord for that. And so, beloved, you you are to consider Jesus and treasure Him. Consider Christ and treasure Him. Listen, He's the rarest jewel. Beholding His beauty delights your eye. Hearing His voice delights your ear. And enjoying and possessing Him delights the heart. So as you highly treasure Him, He will become your soul's delight. So as you meditate on Scripture and as you meditate on Christ, He's going to become more and more your delight. And when you highly prize Him like this, guess what? He will be gloriously obeyed. You're going to want to obey Him like Moses did when he set a higher prize on Christ's reproach than on Pharaoh's crown. (laughs) Christ's reproach is better than Pharaoh's crown. right? You, You can only see that by eyes of faith. Christ should be prized above all others because he's most glorious. Listen, if one is prized for beauty, Christ is the fairest. If if, if someone is prized for strength, Christ is the strongest. Some are prized for wisdom. Listen, Christ has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Others are prized for suitability. Listen, Christ is most suitable. He has life to enliven. He has riches to supply raiment to clothe, a staff to support, a sword to defend, bread to nourish, water to refresh, wine to cheer. Because Christ, there's nothing more glorious than Christ. So you should prize Him above all. He's a gem worth more than a thousand worlds. Jesus is sufficient, a complete Redeemer. Listen, He's rich in grace to pardon. He has power to support you goodness to relieve you, and glory to crown you. None can be, none but Christ can accomplish that for you. None but Christ. And so, beloved, keep your eyes on the prize. Amen? Amen. Keep your eyes on the prize. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race. Listen, by doing that, you'll overcome all the obstacles and you'll keep going. You'll endure. You'll, You'll be strengthened by His example and you'll be stimulated by the reward. You're running to Jesus. What a Savior. Amen.